You are now listening to the Green History Podcast, produced by Elm Film Studios and presented by AC the Historian. أنا أعتقد أن أوروبا الجديدة هي الشرق الأوسط. المملكة العربية السعودية في الخمس سنوات القادمة سوف تكون مختلفة تماما، البحرين سوف تكون مختلفة تماما، الكويت حتى قطر على خلافنا معاهم لديهم اقتصاد قوي سوف تكون مختلفة تماما بعد خمس سنوات. الإمارات، عمان، لبنان، الأردن، مصر، العراق والفرص التي لديها إذا نجحنا في الخمس سنوات القادمة سوف تلتحق فينا الدول أكثر وسوف تكون النهضة القادمة في العالم في 30 سنة القادمة في الشرق الأوسط إن شاء الله هذه حرب السعوديين هذه حربي اللي أخوضها شخصيا ولا أريد أن أفارق الحياة إلا وأرى الشرق الأوسط في مقدمة Hello? Oh, hi. The American. Assalamu alaikum, young man. How is it going? Oh, yes, yes, listen. I know we agreed to meet on Monday. But I'm in a bit of a situation right now. It's getting a bit late and I'm stuck in the office. Sorry. Oh, you don't mind meeting me here, do you? Well, if it isn't too much to ask, it'd be great if you can meet me here. Okay, then let me text you the address right now. There you are. Just notify the concierge that you're here to see a Sayyid Abu Zaki upon your arrival, and I'll meet you in the waiting area. Hello? Ah, Khalifa. Splendid. Let him know. I'm on my way downstairs right now. Thank you. Going down. Assalamu alaikum, young man. It is nice to see you again. You're always so eager to explore history. Hmm. I admire your commitment and consistency. Remind me again. How long are you here for? Oh, six months. Isn't that a bit too long for a visitor? You're on a student exchange program. That makes a lot more sense now. Listen. Following our journey tonight, I may have a proposal that could be of interest to you. But enough of that for now. We must get going. I plan on returning to the office before Fajr. Let's go. I see you're a mortal enthusiast as well. Impressive, isn't she? <laughs> Get inside. Here, 
Let me open the windows for some air. Young man, tonight we are going to be visiting the founding fathers of this kingdom. We will be traveling to the year 1902, where it all began. I do not expect you to anticipate any of the experiences you're about to witness for yourself. However, I would advise you once more to keep an open mind and to contextualize details according to their historic setting, not by modern standards. I, for one, am not a fan of revisionist history or conspiratorial theories when it comes to subjects such as these that are already so complicated and misunderstood. Anyway, we have arrived. Young man, are you ready? Follow me. Here we are again, in the middle of the desert. The day is March 2nd, 1902. My friend, this is Najd. It's a region that has very little resources available to its population and very, very little growth here. Have a look at those modest shelters over there. They are living quarters that house entire families. Nothing like the air-conditioned compounds we are now accustomed to in the modern kingdom. No shopping malls, no towers, and certainly no significant monuments worthy of note. You see, this region never did attract the attention of foreign administrations or governors. The people are virtually abandoned. As you can see, the residents appear to be deeply traditional and maintain very conservative customs. Their way of life has not been affected or influenced by the Turks or any other external influence for that matter. Life in the Najd has been uninterrupted for several generations. In fact, this stagnation dates back to the middle of the 11th century when the Bani al-Khadir stopped ruling this area. Ever since then, the political system of the Najd has been absent of any recognized central authority and tribal rule has become the only form of governance. This power vacuum means that tribal skirmishes and confrontations are all but common given the very scarce resources available. But like I explained to you last week in the restaurant, everything changed when Sheikh Mohammed ibn Abdul Wahhab returned from his studies abroad and began his revivalist movement, which resulted in his exile out of Uyayna, his home village, and his invitation to Dir'iyya, which was ruled then by Muhammad ibn Saud. Anyway, we're going to be traveling to a very specific location. Let us go over there and mount that horse. Make sure to hold on tight. I 
I did promise to take you on a visit to see the true founders of Saudi Arabia. And like I began explaining to you last time, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, much like the United States of America, where you come from, was founded by a group of very religious men who had a specific vision for what the nation should be. Interestingly enough though, whereas the founding fathers of America were fighting against the British for their independence, the Arabs over here, not just the Al Saud, were all fighting the Ottoman Turks for their independence. The historical parallels between the USA and KSA are striking and have fascinated historians and sociologists for many years. Look, do you see those encampments over there by the oasis? That is where Abdul Aziz ibn Saud is recruiting and assembling nomadic tribes from all over the Najd. He is currently in the process of socializing them in these rehabilitation centers before deploying them across the Hejaz. Rest assured though, that this is but one of the many desert outposts where Abdul Aziz ibn Saud is reorienting his Bedouin recruits. Although they have accepted the teachings of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and they are still studying his books to this day, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud is acutely aware that they are still in need of further development. His plan is to mold these newly founded communities through his carefully constructed social reforms, policies and methods to ensure that they are thoroughly socialized. Besides, the scholars advising him are completely opposed to the Bedouin lifestyle. According to them, it is not conducive to maintaining an orthodox Islamic lifestyle. You have a question? Okay. Very good. Yes. These settlements are known as Hujar. Many of them, like the one we're passing through right now, are strategically located near a desert oasis. This was done in order to encourage Bedouins to engage in agricultural practices, thereby transforming them into a more cultivated people. <laughs> no pun intended. The typical community can accommodate up to 10,000 residents and they have access to living quarters, mosques, schools, and ammunition reserves. At first sight, everyone is the same here. But what you cannot detect immediately is that these populations are not totally integrated. Though they may have loosened the tight knot of tribal allegiances, they still maintain a very distinct social ranking and hierarchy. In fact, this specific community has been divided into three distinct social ranks. The first is comprised of tribal nobles. The second social rank is comprised of religious clerics, preachers and teachers who have been brought into this region to settle in order to reinforce and continue the work of the scholars in the Riyadh. Finally, the third social group are the merchants and craftsmen. Of course, the general population as well, which includes civilians and ordinary people, such as the ones you're seeing right now. I guess it would be fantastic to expect a utopian classless society anywhere on the planet, let alone in Arabia. 
And while the social conditions in these encampments may not be perfect in every sense of the word, it is still better than the climate of warfare and division that these Bedouins were accustomed to in the past. Very well. Let us dismount and continue by foot now. The military training grounds are just beyond that gate and we must remain inconspicuous. Over here, let us take a seat next to this tree. We can watch the men as they train in the midday sun. Have you ever been in a military training camp? No, not many people have to be honest. This is where the ordinary Bedouins are being trained for combat as Abdul Aziz prepares his military campaign across the Hejaz. Their program is somewhat rudimental and to the experienced military observer, they are just a group of uncultured and simple desert dwellers who cannot amount to any serious threat or danger to any adversarial army. However, Abdul Aziz believes in their potential and has a deep conviction in this program. After all, these Bedouins are a very resilient yet facile people. You know, the open desert is one of the most hostile terrains on earth. Once you know how to survive here, you can overcome nearly every obstacle nature presents. Their rudimentary and uncompromising disposition makes them easy to influence as opposed to the city-dwelling Arabs who are far more capricious and difficult to control at least in regards to religious affairs. Most, if not all, of the city-dwelling Arab populations are strict adherents of one of the four schools of Sunni jurisprudence, and the vast majority of them are initiates of a Sufi fraternity. It is just the way things are in the Hejaz right now. Anyway, these recruits will soon be ready to go out and sweep over this entire region and since they're not fighting under any tribal banner but under the banner of unity they shall be known as the Ikhwan or the Brotherhood. The term is actually found in the Quran in Surah Al-Hujurat. You see from these very simple desert outposts will soon arise a fearsome and fervent cast of warriors who shall sweep over the Hijaz under the command and leadership of Abdul Aziz ibn Sa'ud himself. But regardless of what is yet to come, for now, the world is still oblivious to what is taking place in this kind of settlement. But they will soon take notice. In fact, I do not even believe that Abdul Aziz himself is aware of the full impact and legacy his army will engrave in the pages of history. These Ikhwan are the blueprint for religious and militant fanaticism that will engulf this region in years to come, typecasting the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia itself as an extreme religious political actor whose influence will spread into surrounding Arab nations over the next half century. Once they are unleashed from these training camps, their influence and legacy shall soon permeate through the very fiber of Saudi history, society and identity. The Ikhwan are about to become what the pilgrims and founding fathers were to the United States of America. Come, let's go before we get completely drenched.
Alhamdulillah, we're back. Come, let's go back to my office before Fajr. I'd like to discuss some important matters with you. Welcome to my office. This is where I coordinate many studies and produce films and articles on Islamic history. It's a passion that I've entertained for much of my adult life. In fact, it was what brought me here to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia back in the 1970s. Anyway, young man, do you have any questions about our journey tonight? Oh, so you want to know more about the Ali Sheikh, the descendants of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab? Well, I'm going to teach you something very interesting about how Saudi society is organized and governed with the complicity of three pillars of power. Yes, the pillars of power. There are three of them. Pay close attention to what I am about to tell you. King Abdul Aziz was a very shrewd and experienced commander. He and his progenitors understood the importance of having religious endorsement from the scholars and sheikhs, as that is fundamentally an essential component needed in order to wage wars against local tribes or to challenge Turkish authority, as a Muslim ruler cannot and must not be disobeyed unless there are sound and reasonable religious grounds. That is why scholarly verdicts are so important. Without the endorsement of the scholars, anyone fighting against the Turks would have been considered rebels and insubordinates to Islamic ruling authority. So you must understand this, that the scholars themselves are the first pillar of power. And this has been the case ever since Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and Muhammad ibn Saud consummated their pact in 1744. The second pillar of power is the Al Saud clan itself. They represent the ruling class and the political establishment. Without their direction and tacit approval, nothing will be sanctioned at all. You cannot have a body without a head. But if the Al Saud were the head and the scholars are the heart of this movement, then the question remains, who are the arms and feet? Well, that brings us to the third and final pillar of power. This is perhaps the single most elusive and secretive reality about the history of this kingdom. Do you remember those unsuspecting and simple desert Bedouins we saw in the training camps? Well, they are the third pillar. Unbeknownst to them at that time, they became the military pillar for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia because without a military force neither the religious nor the political will can impose itself on any population it is therefore those Bedouins who are the true conquering force in this region 
and we should therefore be attributing the establishment of this kingdom to them. One wonders why we hear so much about the first two pillars and so very little of the third. Not surprisingly, their contribution and legacy is often sidelined and omitted from official records altogether. But there is a reason for that. However, I cannot discuss these subjects any further. I'd like instead to offer you a short-term contract to work for my research foundation here. It will enable you to earn some money in the evenings while you continue your studies in college during the daytime. If things go well after the initial eight-week period, we can even review the terms and perhaps discuss more permanent arrangements. But make sure you arrive here on Monday at 9pm. My secretary will be in touch with you tomorrow morning and will arrange for a package to be delivered to you. Make sure you bring all the equipment with you next Monday and do not be late. In the meantime, you must discard of your existing phone and use this communication device instead. Oh no, the pleasure is all mine, young man. Tell me, what is your actual name? Faizan. That's an unusually unique name, Faizan. Oh, and they call you Faiz for short. <laughs> I do like that. Well, they call me Abu Zaki, but you can call me AZ for short. It's time for us to go.